This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. I don't know that any religious conversion is more unlikely than another. After all, we're, we're only born again because a perfect man who is God died on a cross and rose from the dead on the third day. That's not a likely story. We're all equally dead in our transgressions before Jesus saves us. But I know what Randy Newman means in his new book, Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism, published by Craigle. We all know someone who'd really surprise us if he or she professed faith in Jesus Christ. And Randy's book draws lessons for our evangelism from those stories. Newman is a senior teaching fellow with the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C., author of the best-selling Questioning Evangelism, and veteran of more than 30 years in campus ministry. Uh, Randy writes that coming to Christ takes time, that people tend to come to faith communally, that they come to faith variously, and that nothing is too difficult for God And he joins me now on Gospel Bound to discuss more observations from these unlikely converts as we seek to share Christ in a contentious age. Thank you for joining me, Randy. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Randy, how likely were you to convert? (laughs) Well, that's a great place to start. I I mean, I, I guess pretty unlikely. I came from a Jewish background, and I really didn't hear much at all about Jesus other than we don't believe in him. And um I got invited down to a church youth group by a friend simply because it was fun and he told me the girls were cute. So that's why I went. And my first hearing of the gospel was just met with, no, that's that's irrelevant to me. I'm Jewish. We, we just don't do that. Uh, and it was a three and a half or four year process from that starting point to when in sophomore year in college, it all came together. But Yes, I would, uh, humanly speaking, I would put it certainly in the unlikely category. Do you find that the more unlikely converts make better evangelists, or is that not true? A coincidence? What do you think? Oh, I, yeah, I think so, although I, I can't say that I've studied it enough thoroughly to say. I, I do think when when people have had the kind of story that was um, arresting or unlikely or, oh my goodness, I can't believe I came from such a very, very different starting point that it does embolden us to be able to talk to people because there's a certain sense of, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just looking at it humanly speaking. I'm looking at it through the lens of my own experience and also the, the reality of the scriptures. So, uh, I think that does help, although there's so many other factors, I think, about people being bold in evangelism. When you you undertook a more systematic review of many, many, many conversion stories, 
When you looked back on your own story, what were some of those elements that you found that maybe felt unique to you at the time, but turned out to be maybe a bit paradigmatic in some ways of how God seems to work in conversion? Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, well, um, well, that whole thing that it's a, that for many people it's a gradual, incremental process uh, was certainly my story. Uh, the uh, another finding when I was interviewing all these people uh, were that there were so many, so many different voices or different people who spoke into the process. It wasn't just a one one-on-one conversation with one particular close friend. I mean, there there are those central characters, but. As I look back at my story and as I listened to these many stories that I heard, oh, they heard it here and then they heard it repeated here and then they heard it from very different kinds of people, older people, younger people, married people, single people, different races. Uh, And I think that that is a crucial component of evangelism that we often leave out or ignore or don't recognize uh, when I when I started looking back at my own story after hearing some of these stories, I, I remembered people who spoke in or were used by the Lord that I had totally, completely forgotten about. Um, one of my favorites was uh, I was working at my father's gas station a uh, long time ago, ba- back when people came out from the gas station to pump gas for you. Can you imagine? Um, some, of, some of the listeners will have to look it up on uh, his, the History Channel. But... Uh, uh, but so there was this guy who I was pumping gas in his car and I was looking in the back window of his car and saw all of these tracts and booklets. And he gave me one that I then went into the gas station and read from cover to cover. And that's when I think I started understanding the gospel. It was still years after that, that I actually became a believer, but I never saw that guy's face. All I saw was his left arm as he handed me money and a magazine or something. Um, but I, I now think back about it, and he was one of the most crucial players in the whole story. You allude in the book, Randy, that we don't live in a time when most people have been are, are positively predisposed to the gospel. But that suggested a follow-up question, which is, has there ever been a time when people have been positively predisposed to the gospel? That's not a gotcha question. It could be, yes, there are actually some maybe common grace reasons that make people less likely now than, say, blank period of time. Uh, well, uh, it's, uh, it's all in the category of the gospel has always been a stumbling block and it has always been a minority point of uh, perspective. But I do think in our culture, there is a hostility in our culture right now in our moment that wasn't this hot 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. So uh, so I do think things were different. Um, again, we're always looking at that from the human perspective, from God's perspective. That's not any more difficult. Uh, but, but I don't remember too much training in evangelism. 20 years ago, 30 years ago that said, now listen, when people get angry, here's what you need to do. I think now that's pretty important part of the preparation and training. Uh, we should almost assume there are, there are going to be a lot of people who will find out that we're a Christian and they will immediately jump to, oh, you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, you're homophobic, etc. And it And it comes with not just 
intellectual obstacles, but some pretty strong emotional ones. Hmm. Yeah, so we identify the, the sexual element there. I suppose we would also say that the lack of baseline moral formation to a kind of law, would that also be a change perhaps in the last generation or generation and a half? There's not necessarily the same base level assumption of conviction that we've perhaps fallen short to some kind of external standard? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I I think there was a time not all that long ago when uh, I would say a majority of people thought, yeah, there's right and wrong. And if I violate it, I feel guilty. Uh, I think that the percentage of people who feel that way or think that way has gone down. Um, the assumptions about morality and sexuality are certainly very difficult, uh, different. I mean, I, you know, I did campus ministry for a very long time. I would say the first 20 years of campus ministry, uh, college students who were uh, having sex knew that eh, I probably shouldn't do that, but, uh, you know, I, I want to. Now, I would say the majority would say, well, of course I am. I mean, that's just natural. It's just, it's kind of weird not to. So those are different people that we're talking to. I actually think, Randy, we may have transitioned to a new level, which is now they're not having sex because they're scared about consent and they're scared about abuse and they are so distracted by their devices and social media and things like that. Mm. That was one of the challenges. I was just talking to a friend who does campus ministry uh, in the Northeast. And he said, I mean, the biggest change between him and I were in college is that exact. I mean, there would have been people having sex and there wouldn't necessarily have been that kind of conviction, but now it's just not even happening anymore Mm. because those circumstances have changed so much. So only constant there is change. One, (laughs) one, uh, one of those differences you identify is that non-Christians now feel like they have the upper hand on us intellectually, which probably that's a, that's probably been true for, I don't know, maybe a century. It could be, could be longer than that, but now also morally have the upper hand. That seems new. Explain what you mean by that, that change in that upper hand. Uh, yeah. And, and I think it, I think it is a change. Uh, the, the, the moral upper hand they feel is that they're not judgmental, we are. And that's, that's the worst sin. That is the cardinal sin. Uh, they don't judge or tell anybody that they're wrong. Uh, we do a whole lot of that. And uh, they also feel, I think, a moral superiority because they're tolerant and open-minded of a lot of different perspectives. Uh, a lot of different paths and religions get to heaven. We believe there's only one way, and that, in their mind, is well. First of all, it's, they think it's intellectually ridiculous and uh, impossible to defend. But it's also it's it's morally wrong. It's um, uh, it's bad. It's not it's not just we disagree with you. It's we're good for society, you're bad for society. By the way, I feel like I have to jump in and say, in, in, I, what I kept finding, though, is it was like the obstacles seemed to be bigger and bigger, and yet that, that, that didn't stop the gospel from going through. I mean, it, it, 
the, the gospel is no less powerful than it has always been. And so that's what makes the story so amazing, I think. Right. Well, that's what uh, we'll get to some questions here where you really do seem to counter a lot of the assumptions that I brought in about evangelism and apologetics today. Um, let me follow up on that question, though. What you're describing there is both interesting and concerning and at the same time transparently foolish because what you're describing is judgmental attitudes what you're describing is moral evaluations there so <laughs> is it, i mean is that not is wouldn't that just be easy to flip right around and say well no you're not you're not upset about being judgmental you're just upset that i don't share your same judgments hmm. you're judging me I mean, I, I don't. Does that not create some level of neutrality, at least? Uh, well, I, I, I think it can, and that is the uh, device or technique that we as Christians need to develop. Um, I think I refer to it in the in the book or, or uh, about leveling the playing field. We, we we need to show people. Listen, we're both intolerant in on some level. We're both judging to some level. Uh, and so then what we need to do is compare our intolerances. But uh, so so from the Christian perspective, it's easy to see that. Hey, wait a minute. You're condemning me for being judgmental in a very judgmental way. You're condemning me for being self-righteous in an amazingly self-righteous way. So the first stage, I think, is for us to help train Christians to see that. The second is in the conversations to try to show that to people. And I haven't found that to be easy. I, I find that you, you point it out and then you have to point it out again and they have to say it a different way. And because when people, when they finally start getting it, oh, I'm being self-righteous, it's pretty earth shaking for them because because they, they uh, uh, losing that upper hand <laughs> is uh, quite uh, destabilizing for them. Well, one of the people who listen to this podcasts and, and read my work know that the influence of Jonathan Haidt's social psychology on me and this reminds mm -hmm. me of this is more or less just trying to level the playing field at the level of rational attitudes which really are not how most people truly function so a lot of the evangelistic conversations we have are at that rational level where we have to get down into the intuitive tribal level where most people operate. So what you're talking about there, I presume, is sort of leveling the playing field by shaking them up so that their rational defenses will fall so that then we can start speaking heart to heart to them about why they truly feel this way. Um, we're talking basically here about forms of pre-evangelism. And you have a high regard in this book for pre-evangelism, not just as some kind of cop-out for somebody who doesn't want to call for repentance and faith. Do you think there is more of a need today for pre-evangelism perhaps than when you started out in college ministry? Oh, yes, very much so. Very much so. Because uh, there, there was a time where, well, the, the starting point was just further along. You could say to someone, um, have you ever thought about having a personal relationship with God? And the God that came to their mind was the one you were talking about. And the notion that you could have a personal relationship with this God was was a category they already had, or at least it made sense. And today, you have to go further back and listen. When I say the word God, here's who I'm talking about. Um, so I I do think there has always been a need for pre-evangelism, and I do think it's more 
necessary today in more situations. But I, I quickly want to add, uh, this isn't a brand new thing that just came into being since Francis Schaeffer. Uh, I, I, I marvel at the difference between the way Paul preached in Acts 17 than the way he preached in Acts 13. In Acts 13, he was in a Jewish synagogue, and they already knew that the scriptures were authoritative. They knew the God Paul was talking about. On Mars Hill in Acts 17, he had to start further back and say, listen, here's the God I'm talking about. And, and I think what Jesus uh, did in his conversation with the woman at the well in John 4 is, I'm talking about water. I'm talking about a kind of water that if you could drink this water, you'd never be thirsty again. He's still got a long way to go before he's talking about substitutionary atonement on the cross. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really helpful that even as we talk about the constant being change, still where we go back to is the scripture. That's kind of the premise of this Gospel Bound podcast is that even as we're bounding forward in hope, we're looking backward as we're always tied to that same message that saved then and continues to save now. Uh, before I start to ask you to correct some of my other notions that I apparently had wrong, <laughs> um, I want to ask one more bit of a downer question here. I'm oh, sure good. over the course of, of decades of college ministry, you've seen your share of students who seemed at one point to follow Jesus passionately, even as evangelists, grow up and drift away from the faith. I'm wondering if you've observed any common threads in those stories. Hmm. That is a downer. Thanks. Um, <laughs> we're, get, we're getting there, Randy. <laughs> um, uh, common threads. Well, I, uh, I think a fair amount of it can be seen. I, I don't want this to sound like it's cold analysis because it's deeply painful. It really is. But I, I do think we can see it from the different seeds that Jesus talked about in the, the parable of the sower. And so the cares of this world choking, um, that persecution coming, uh, the persecution today, it's real, it's there. It is kind of subtle, but I think for a lot of college students and then maybe even more so, maybe it's even more outside of college because in college there is, for Christians who get involved in a Christian ministry, there is a, a, a protection there. When they graduate and they're out in the working world, it's tougher to find. And um, even if they're part of a really great church, somehow the church seems like in a separate category of their life than where they work and where they do social things and where they live. On the college campus, there was a little bit more, I don't know, cohesion. So um, I think it's really tough to be a young, single Christian now and holding firm to biblical morality and the exclusivity of the gospel. And uh, it, it's easier to hold firm when you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you've been walking with the Lord for a while as a new person, you know, new outside of college in the the, the working world. Uh, the, the, the pressures are pretty intense. Yeah, I, um, we're our church adds several hundred members a year and our elders do the membership interviews and our average age is within sort of the mid to late 20s. Mm. At church and the stories are very common now these are the positive stories 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm not seeing the deconversion stories. I'm seeing the positive ones, but they almost always have a couple things in common. One of them is that the college years were formative for them, either because they really strayed away from what they had grown up with in a religious household, in a Christian household, or because it was a place where they really began to see their faith as their own, or where they came to a brand new faith there without a, a separate from, from family. But then that's, that's the first side, the, the formative uh, role of the college years. But the second side is very few of them jump straight from college to, I'm now a member of this church. Hmm. There's almost always a time of, and then I moved here and I started to lose my way and I did some things I didn't, I shouldn't have done. I, mm-hmm. I didn't live up to my commitments, but now I'm resolving to join this church. Uh, to get back in touch with that. Or sometimes it's a relationship that brings them back. Sometimes it's just conviction. Sometimes they ended up in another church, sort of a bigger seeker kind of church, and that helped them. And then they came over to our church from there. But anyway, so I'm, I'm seeing the positive side of that, but you can only assume how many other cases of people who never do make it back, or at least don't make it back soon. Yeah. Uh, again, it, this is painful, but uh, what I did see in talking to a lot of people, there there was this recurring theme of, I strayed away. At first, it was a whole lot of fun. And then after a while, it was, oh, this is really empty. This is really hollow. Uh, yeah, I'm involved in a whole lot of relationships, but I'm not, I'm not finding anything meaningful. Um, uh, yeah, isn't it great to find, you know, um, new drinks to get drunk, but after a while it's, it's drunk. And so I, I think some people have to come, well, hopefully not all the way to the end of the rope, but, but getting close to say, you know what, uh, this really is, this didn't come through with all that I thought it was going to come through with. Yeah. So let's start while you begin to tear down some of my assumptions that I'd hear to hear. One of them is you are not that impressed or worried about moralistic therapeutic deism. So oh my. I've written a lot about this uh, over the last decade plus about uh, the, the transformation in American youth and this new religion uh, that uh, Christian Smith and others have written about moralistic therapeutic deism. You don't seem very worried about it. You think it's pretty pathetic and hollow <laughs> and people, I mean, it's much easier to show them how Christianity is better in that atmosphere. Is that, is that right? Is that, did I surprise that accurately? I, I think so. Yeah. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not negative on it. I just thought, well, we should all be negative I, about moralistic therapeutic deism. It's just a matter <laughs> of, oh, you just seem to be more hopeful about the opportunities for the gospel yes. in that atmosphere. You don't seem to be very right. worried about how it's wiping out Christianity. No, uh, that was actually kind of a surprise for me. I mean, when I was doing the research uh, project I put together, I'm going to look for this. I'm going to try to see if uh, people really sound like they hold to this. And so, so one of the things is, well, if they do, they're, they're not really holding to it all that strongly or with conviction. And it's not it's not quite as clean as that. I mean, moralistic therapeutic deism, and that sounds like a really concise uh, coherent system. And it just wasn't for a whole lot of people. But the the good news in it was it, it wasn't such what I think when a lot of Christians hear about when they first learn that term, moralistic therapeutic deism, they go, man, how in the world are we going to get through to that? 
and and I did too. And yet, what I found was it 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 didn't push back very well. Uh, I think it has a, a real emptiness to it that when people started hearing gospel transformation in other people's lives, when they saw a a, a graciousness or a kindness or a or a confidence in their Christian friends that seemed to have a greater power. Hmm. That's encouraging. Now there were, there were several cases of this where you really pushed back on something in a helpful way to something I've been teaching other people about or that I've been reading about. Let's give another example of this. You seem to say that it's okay to debate Christian views on sex while working backward from those debates toward the resurrection. Now, I have been telling people the opposite of not getting <laughs> bogged down in debates about sex. Um, they focus on the resurrection instead. But I appear to be wrong on that because you seem to indicate that the conversations about sex open up some avenues for fruitful discussion to show how the Christian view is superior or more fulfilling. Uh, but go ahead and describe it in your own words. Well, um, by the way, I'm so very thankful you've invited me on the podcast in light of in light of all these objections. I you like had. to be um, so wrong. That's the whole point of what we're doing on this. If I'm wrong, I want to know it. I don't want to go and teach people the wrong thing. Well, a whole lot of my training was stay away from those really tough issues like sexuality and abortion or whatever. That that's not the central issue. Just when people raise those questions, say, "Well, what I'd rather talk to you about is Jesus and the resurrection." And uh, what I found in listening to people's stories were um, that's not how they reported it. Uh, now, now people did. Uh, they, it is more important for us to talk about Jesus and the resurrection, and that's where we want to get to for sure. But it's not a total. Oh, let's not talk about that. It's let's let's talk about that, and then use that as a way of showing that Jesus and the resurrection is really what we need to talk about. So if people are talking about sexuality, well, then let's talk about it. And what we want to do is get to the point where we say, you know, um, there, there is a biblical view about sexuality. And I know that a lot of people in our society have rejected it, but uh, I still think uh, there's some great merit to it. And here's why, because the one who's behind it is not just, it's, it's not just a different rule book, um, these insights about who we are as a person come from a personal God who came as Jesus and died and rose again. So it's not, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's not like we make a U-turn from the topic of sexuality. We, 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 we go into it. That's not the main topic, but we're using it as a, as a platform to move to the gospel. Well, it just occurred to me now, Randy, as you were talking that, when I look at those reports, I'm going to be uh, this weekend interviewing, I think, six new members for our church and I've been doing this dozens of times. It seems like one of the most helpful things in the conversion process is to be doing things with a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you wish you hadn't been doing, especially because you realized it was pretty empty and that a relationship with Christ is far better than whatever that sort of pathetic relationship was that fell apart and, and wrecked your world. So I guess that's that's confirming what you're talking about right there as well, that they seem to be they seem to be more open to the gospel precisely because of their experience with different ethics. 
and they seem to be attracted to Christianity in part because not only I think what you describe here is they have to see it both as both as true and also as beautiful. Is that right? Yes, yes. And so I, I think a lot of a, a lot of people are expecting us to be angry or harsh or you need to cut that out. And uh, that, that, uh, first of all, that doesn't work very well. <laughs> um, and, and bigger is that that's just that's not the way the scriptures come across. And so, um, I mean, Jesus talking to that woman at the well, he dared to raise the questions about her five husbands and the man she's living with. But he did it graciously and, and kindly out of concern. And so I think part of that leveling the playing field, going back to that theme, is when we respond with disagreement or we respond with correction or the gospel is a better way and we do it with kindness, people can say, now, wait a minute, I, I don't know if I have a category for this. I have a category for agreement and kindness and disagreement and anger. You're disagreeing with me in, it seems like you really care about me. And so that's, that, uh, I mean, I wrote a whole chapter on kindness because I just kept hearing that theme in, in, in really profound ways. And so th- that's, that, that's a very important part of reaching out today. I've got a couple more questions with Randy Newman, author of Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism. Let's talk about one of the other misconceptions you cleared up for me. Uh, I seem to be wrong that we should be building some trust before talking to people directly about Jesus. Now, I'm all for it. I mean, I, I don't ever want to tell somebody to not talk about Jesus, but I've been talking about how in this age of information, it seems that it's very easy to just add to the noise. And mm. thus, there, there needs to, in many cases, be a level of credibility attached to the messenger um, at least that just seems to be my experience, but you point out a number of cases where somebody just jumps straight to talk about Jesus and wow, God worked <laughs> again. Not that I'm, I should be surprised by that, by biblical expectations. It just hasn't often been my experience. Tell us more. Right. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that you're wrong, <laughs> that, that we should seek to try to develop trust and a close relationship. I think that is our goal. We want to do that. I just don't want to go so far as to say it's an absolute non-negotiable requirement every single time because I heard too many stories of people hearing the gospel from a total stranger who had not earned the right to be heard, who had not developed trust, and the gospel is self-authenticating and the power of the scriptures go through. So, of course, we we do. We want to, we want to be... Uh, we want to let our speech be uh, gracious, seasoned with salt, as Colossians 4 says. Um, we want to become all things to all people. We want to pave the way with gentleness and grace, like uh, gr- graciousness and reverence, as First Peter 3 says. But um, if, if we're holding back this idea of, okay, well, I, I've got to make sure that I've developed this relationship enough, how will we ever know? How will we ever know when, when it's enough? Um, uh, and again, I, I just heard stories uh, <laughs> when I was doing the interview. I, I, I'm sure I looked like an idiot because people would say, well, you know, this person said this to me. And I would say, you know, so wait, wait, hold it, hold it, hold it. They said, what? And they would tell. And I would say, 
okay, that really couldn't have worked, could it? I mean, that just seems so blunt. I mean, th- there was one story where the, the, this young woman was standing outside the back of her house smoking her cigarette because her mother wouldn't let her smoke in the house. And her next door neighbor comes out and invites her to a Bible study. And I said, wait, 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 hold it. Okay, so she that's not the first thing she said, did it, was it? Did she say, you know, uh, would you like to come to? Yeah, that was the first words I heard out of her mouth. Would you like to come to a Bible study? I said, now, wait a minute. You like you had some kind of relationship with her before, right? No. I mean, I'd seen her. She was my next door neighbor and we waved to each other. But I never heard her voice until she said she invited me to a Bible study. And again, I'm I'm, you know, beyond belief. I said, all right. But how did she word it? I mean, how did she craft? Didn't she first start with, hi, how are you? How's your day? No, nothing. Well, how did she word this invitation? And she, this, this young woman just looked at me with like, duh. She said, well, she said, would you like to come to a Bible study? I mean, like, you know, there was no smoothness or developing trust or whatever. Now, again, um, some people need to work on sounding more kind and more gracious and gentle. Um, but I just, I, I want to be careful that we don't hold back, hold back, hold back until there's some sort of magic moment because God is not dependent on that. Oh, amen. Um, reminds me also of uh, why I'm grateful for my background in crew uh, and some of that training in evangelism. I recognize some of mm. your teaching there as well. So maybe you've already said it, but this will be a chance for you to reiterate in my last question. You have just one thing, Randy, to say to a local church about evangelism. What's that one message you want to share with them? Oh, my. Well, remember, it's a supernatural process. So it's not just two people talking to each other. It's two people talking to each other under the sovereignty of God. And so when people remember it's supernatural and God is at work, uh, it, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's, uh, it's more likely to succeed because of God's power and the power of his word. Yeah. Well, amen. It's a very helpful book, Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism. It's my hope, Randy, that as many people listen to this podcast and pick up the book, that they'll be bold to invite their next door neighbors to a Bible study. thanks for joining me on gospel bound randy thanks so much i I enjoyed it thanks for listening to this episode of gospel bound with colin hansen join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age visit tgc.org slash gospel bound to find transcripts and past episodes subscribe to my newsletter and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of jesus christ